Section 3 of Gallipoli Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 3. April 25th, 1915. April 25th was awakened up at four by the noise of the distant rumbling of guns, and coming to my senses, I realized that the great effort had started. I dressed hastily and went on deck, and there found the Essex and Royal Scots falling in on parade, with full packs on, two bags of iron rations, and the unexpended portion of the day's rations, for they had breakfasted, entrenching tools, two hundred rounds of ammunition, rifle and bayonet. I stood and watched, watched their faces, listened to what they said to each other, and could trace no sign of fear in their faces and no words of apprehension at forthcoming events in their conversation. It was a simple fall-in, just as of old in the days of peace parades, with the familiar faces of the non-commissioned officers and officers before them, like one big family party, they seem to be rather weighed down with their packs, and I pity them for the work that this parade is called for. The booming of the guns grows louder. It is very misty, but on going forward I can just see land, and the first officer points out to me the entrance through the Dardanelles. How narrow it seems, like the Thames at Gravesend, almost. I can see the Askold distinctly. A Tommy said, There's the old packet of woodbines, giving them the what-hole. She is firing broadsides, and columns of dust and smoke arise from shore. The din is getting louder. I can't quite make out which is the Asiatic side and which Gallipoli. It is getting clearer, and a lovely day is developing. Seagulls are swooping over the calm sea above the din, and a thunderous roar bursts out now and again from Queen Bess. Her fifteen-inch guns are at work, and she is firing enormous shrapnel shells, terrible shells which seemed to burst thirty feet from the ground. 8 a.m. The Essex are disembarking now, going down the rope ladder slowly and with difficulty. One slips on stepping into a boat and twists his ankle. An onlooking Tommy is heard to remark, Somebody will get hurt over this job soon. Young Millward, the naval landing officer, is controlling the disembarkation. He has a typical sailor's face, keen blue eyes, straight nose, and firm mouth, with a good chin. They are landing in small open boats. A tug takes a string of them in tow, and slowly they steam away for W Beach. We hear the Lancashires have landed at W Beach and are a hundred yards inshore, fighting for dear life. Tug after tug takes these strings of white open boats away from our ship towards land, with their overladen khaki freight. Slowly they wend their way towards the green shore in front of us, winding in and out among transports, roaring battleships, and angry destroyers, towards the land of the great adventure. Never, surely, was navy and army so closely allied. I go below to get breakfast, but hardly eat any. The breakfast tables are almost empty, except for a few quartermasters and people like myself who do not fight. I feel ashamed to be there, and a friend says the same. The steward calmly hands the menu round, just as he might on a peaceful voyage. What a contrast! Two boiled eggs, coffee, toast, and marmalade. 
Here we are sitting down to a good meal, and men are fighting up the cliffs a few hundred yards away. I get it over and go up on deck again. 8.30 a.m. It is quite clear now, and I can just see through my glasses the little khaki figures on shore at W Beach and on top of the cliff, while at V Beach, where the River Clyde is lying beached, all seems hell and confusion. Some fool near me says, Look, they are bathing at V Beach. I get my glasses onto it and see about a hundred khaki figures crouching behind a sand dune close to the water's edge. On a hopper, which somehow or other has been moored in between the River Clyde and the shore, I see khaki figures lying, many apparently dead. I also see the horrible sight of some little white boats drifting with motionless khaki freight helplessly out to sea on the strong current that is coming down the straits. The battleships incessantly belch spurts of flame, followed by clouds of buff-colored smoke, and above it all a deafening roar. It is ear-splitting. I shall get used to it in time, I suppose. Some pinnace comes alongside our ship with orders, and the midshipman in command says the Australians have landed, but with many casualties, and have got John Turk on the run across the peninsula. I turn my glasses up the coast to see if I can see them, but they are too far away. I can only see brown hills and bursting shells, a sea dead calm, and a perfect day. The work of the Creator and the destroying hand of man in close intimacy. A seaplane swoops from the pale blue of the sky and settles like a beautiful bird on the dark blue of the sea alongside a great battleship, while hellish, destructive shells deal out death and injury to God's creatures on shore. This is war, and I am watching as from a box at the theater. 10.20 a.m. Imbros is peaceful and beautiful, Gallipoli beautiful and awful. We have moved closer into the beach, and they are trying to hit us from the shore. Two shells have just dropped near us, 20 yards away. The din is ear-splitting, especially from Queen Bess. I can hear the crack-crack of the rifles on shore, which reminds me of Bulford. I shall be glad when we land. This boat is getting on my nerves. We are just off the Horse of Troy, as we call the River Clyde. Are we going to land at V Beach? I can see no sign of life there. Nothing but columns of earth thrown into the air and bits of the houses of Sedel Bar flying around, and always those crouching figures behind the sand dunes. Only the Royal Scots left on board. Perhaps they are going to land and make good. I get near Millward to see if he has any orders. He goes up to the bridge to take a signal. 11.30 a.m. We are going out to sea again. A tug comes alongside with wounded, and they are carefully hoisted on board by slings. They are the first wounded that I have ever seen in my life, and I look over the side with curiosity and study their faces. They are mostly Lancashire Fusiliers from W Beach. Some look pale and stern. Some are groaning now and again, while others are smoking and joking with the crew of the tug. I talk to one of the more slightly wounded, and he tells me that it was fun when, once they got ashore, but they copped it from machine guns and getting out of the boats into the shallow water, where they found venomous barbed wire was thickly laid. He laid out four John Turks and then copped it through the thigh, and three hours later was picked up by sailors. And then, any chance of Blighty, sir? 
and I said, I'm afraid not, it will be Malta or Alex, and back here again, to which he replied, yes, I want to get back to the regiment. 12 noon. We are going closer in again, and the Royal Scots are leaving. The quartermaster, Lieutenant Steele, remains behind with ration parties. He is very impatient and wants to get off. A curious man tells me he doesn't think he will come off Gallipoli alive. 2.15 p.m. I have a dismal lunch, just like the breakfast. I can see French troops pouring out of small boats now onto the Asiatic side and forming up in platoons and marching in open order inland while shrapnel bursts overhead. During lunch I find that we went out to sea but are nearing the land now. Oh, when shall I get off this ship, I wonder? Millward tells me that the delay occurred because at first we were to land at V Beach, but that it has become so hot there that landing today is impossible. He says that I shall land at 4 p.m. I hear a cheer, a real British one. Is that a charge? My imagination has conjured up a mass of yelling and maddened men rushing forward helter-skelter. What I see is crouching figures, some almost bent double, others jog-trotting over the grass with bright sun-rays flashing on their bayonets. Now and again a figure falls and lies still, very still in a crumpled heap, while all the time the crack-crack of musketry and the pop-popping of machine-guns never ceases. That is what a charge looks like. I chat to Millward, and he tells me that the Navy are doing their job well, and he will be surprised if a single Turk is alive for three miles inshore by nightfall. But he expresses surprise that we have only the 29th and the Australians. As he figures it, we want six divisions and the job over in a month. This depresses me. I have orders to leave, and I must get ready. 4 p.m. I give orders to my servant and to the corporal and private of the advanced supply section who are to accompany me to get kit ready. I am to land at once on W Beach with seven days rations and water and a quantity of small arms ammunition for my brigade. I superintend the loading of the supplies from the forward hold to the lighter which is moored alongside, my corporal on the lighter checking it and doing his job just as methodically as he used to at Bulford. While at work, a few shells drop into the sea quite near, throwing up water spouts as high as the funnel of the ship. Two small boats are made fast to the lighter, and my servant and I get into the lighter down the rope ladder. Beastly things, rope ladders. We sit down on the boxes and wait. We wait a devil of a time while others join us, among whom are the 88th Field Ambulance and the Padre. Suddenly, Padre gets a message that he is not to go, and we find that he was trying to smuggle himself ashore. At last up comes a small pinnace with a very baby of a midshipman at the wheel, and a lot of orders are sung out in a shrill voice to men old enough to be his father. We slowly steam for shore. Passing across the bows of the implacable, we nearly have our heads blown off by the blast of her forward guns. And the funny thing is, I can hardly see a man on board. Pinnaces, tugs, destroyers are rushing in and out of the fleet of transports and warships. A tug passes close to us on its way to the Dongola, the ship I have just left, loaded with wounded, all slight cases, and they give us a cheer and shout, Best of luck, boys! We wave back. We approach close into W Beach, where lighters are moored to more lighters beached high on the sand, and then the snotty, making a sweep with his pinnace, swings us round. 
He gives the order to cast adrift, and then shouts at a baby voice, I can't do any more for you. You must get ashore the best you can. We fortunately manage with difficulty to grab a rope from one of the moored lighters and make fast while the two boats are rowed ashore. There we stick. I dare not leave these seven days' rations and water for four thousand men, and I shout to seamen on shore to try to push us in and so beach us. The bombardment begins to ease off somewhat. The sun begins to sink behind Imbros, and gradually it turns bitterly cold. I sit and shiver, munching the unexpired portion of my day's ration. I want a coat badly, but by this time my kid is on shore with my servant. We appear to have been forgotten altogether. On the cliffs in front of us, Tommies are limping back wounded. One comes perilously near the edge of the cliff, stumbling and swaying like a drunken man. We shout loudly to him as time after time he all but falls over the edge. Two Royal Army Medical Corps grabbed him eventually and led him safely down. I have a smoke and view the scenes on shore. Gradually the beach is becoming filled with medical stores and supplies. It is gruesome seeing dozens of dead lying about in all attitudes. It becomes eerie as it gets darker. At this beach at dawn this morning there landed the Lancashire Fusiliers. They were waited for until their boats were beached, when, as the troops stepped out of the boats, they were fired on by the Turks, who subjected them to heavy machine-gun fire from two cliffs on either side of the beach. The slaughter was terrible. On the right-hand side of the beach the troops had a check, and terrible fighting took place. Finally, one by one the machine-guns were pulled from their positions in the cliff, and the sections working them killed in hand-to-hand -hand struggles. On the left side of the beach the troops found no barbed wire, and so were able to get on shore, and to the cry of, Lads, follow me, from an officer, they swarmed up a fifty-foot steep cliff, clearing the upper ridge of Turks, but losing heavily. They fought their way inland, and after a while were able to enfilade the Turks holding up our men on the right of the beach, until at last, by six a.m., the whole beach was won, and John Turk was driven five hundred yards or more inshore. Midshipmen and naval lieutenants were in charge of the pinnaces towing strings of boats, and as they approached the shore, fired for all they were worth with machine guns mounted forward, protected by shields. Then, swinging around, they cast the boats adrift. Each boat had a few sailors who rowed for shore like mad, and many, in so doing, lost their lives, shot in the back. To row an open boat, unprotected, into murderous machine gun and rifle fire, requires pluck backed by a discipline which only the British Navy can supply. Some of the sailors grabbed rifles from dead and wounded soldiers and fought as infantrymen. I can see many such dead naval heroes before my eyes now, lying still on the bloody sand. I am sitting on the boxes now, and ping goes something past my head, and then ping, ping, with a long ringing sound, follows one after the other. The crackle of musketry begins again, and faster and faster the bullets come. At last I know what bullets are like. The feeling at first is weird. We get behind the pile of boxes, and bullets hit bully beef and biscuit boxes, or pass harmlessly overhead. At last boats come alongside, and we unload the boxes into them, and I go ashore with the first batch, and there I meet 86th and 87th supply officers, who landed two hours earlier. My servant meets me and asks, where shall I sleep? What a question! 
What does he expect me to answer? Room 44, first floor? I say, oh, shove my kit down there, pointing to some lying figures on the sand. Five minutes after, he comes up and with a scared voice says, Them is all stiff corpses, sir. You can't sleep there. I reply, oh, damn it. Go and sit down on my kit till I come back. I start to work to get the stores higher up the cliff. Oh, the sand! It is devilish heavy going, walking up and down with my feet sinking in almost ankle-deep. It is quite dark now, and I stumble at frequent intervals over the dead. Parties are removing them, not for burial, but higher up the beach, out of the way of the working parties. I run into the brigade quartermaster sergeant and ask him, How's the brigadier? He replies, Killed, sir. I can't speak for a moment. And the brigade major? Killed also, sir. That finishes me. It is my first experience of the real horrors of war, losing those who had become friends whom one respected. And I had worked in their headquarters in England every day for two months, knew them almost intimately, and looked forward with pleasure to going through the campaign on their staff. How did it happen, Leslie? I asked. The general was shot in the stomach while in the pinnace before he could step onto the hopper alongside the river Clyde and died shortly after. The brigade major got it walking along the hopper. The river Clyde was to have been brigade headquarters, and the brigade was to have taken V Beach that day. So far, V Beach was still Turkish. Their machine guns kept our men at bay. I wonder what it is like on the river Clyde at present, and whether those few men are still crouching behind that sand dune. Way comes up and says it is going to be a devil of a job getting those stores ashore, and that he can't get enough men. I have a few seamen, Cooper, Whitburn, and my servant, so put them on to it, and I myself help. Thus we struggle on, over the sand, and up to the grass on the slope of the cliff. Phew! It is work, and I am getting dead tired. We work till eleven o'clock, and then Foley and I have a rest behind a pile of boxes on the sand. Bullets steadily ping overhead, and now and again a man gives a little sigh of pain and falls helplessly to the sand. The strange part is that I do not feel sick at the sight of the dead and wounded. I think it is because of the excitement, and because I am dead tired. I get a bit cold sitting still and can't find my coat, so I huddle against Foley behind the boxes. A philosophical naval officer sits alongside, smoking a huge pipe. Crack, crack, crack goes the desultory fire of the rifles. The ships cease firing. It is awfully quiet and uncanny. Suddenly the musketry and rifle fire breaks out with a burst, which develop into a steady roar. The beach becomes alive with people once more. All seems confusion. The naval officer goes on steadily smoking, and we sit still, wondering how things are going to develop. The fleet is silent, but I can just see the outline of the warships, with a few lights showing. Then I hear an officer shouting angrily, Now then, fall in, you men. Who are you? Well, fall in. Get a rifle. Find one, then, and damn quick. Then another officer shouts, All but Royal Army Medical Corps, fall in. Who are you? Fall in. Into file. Right turn. Quick march. About a dozen or two march off into the night up the cliff. Officers, servants, Army Service Corps, Seamen, Royal Naval Division, every man who was not either Royal Army Medical Corps or working on the dozen or so lighters that had been beached. I pause a bit. 
I feel a worm skulking behind these boxes while these events are happening. I express my feelings to Foley, and he says he feels the same. I say, we must do something, and he replies, let's get rifles, and off we go searching for rifles, but can find none in the dark. I lose my temper, why, heaven only knows. I see some men falling in, and I go up to them and say, fall in, you men, why aren't you falling in, although I know they are, and I find an officer in charge and feel an ass. They move up to man the third-line trench just running along the edge of the cliff. All the beach parties have moved up to this trench. I have lost Foley, and so I follow up with no rifle and no revolver and shivering with cold. But I feel much better, although I am still in a temper. Extraordinary, this. I am annoyed with everybody I see. Nerves, I suppose. Then a petty officer comes along and shouts, Now then, you men, where the is the dash ammunition? and in the darkness I discern some seamen carrying boxes of small arms ammunition. I go to the first pair, carrying a box between them, and take one side of the box from one of the seamen, and immediately feel delighted with myself, the sailor, and everybody. I have got a definite job. Up we pant, halfway up the cliff. I find Foley on the same job. A voice shouts, Have you got the ammunition, Foley? It is O'Hara's voice, our deputy assistant quartermaster general and he comes running down to us. Suddenly the fleet open fire, and the infernal din begins all over again, the flashes lighting up the beach, silhouetting men on shore and the ships lying off, and all the time the song of bullets. Red hell and a Sunday night. And this is war at last. I never thought I should ever get as near it as this when I was a civilian. O'Hara says, Who's that to me? and I answer my name, and he says, Righto, give us a hand with this little lot, lad. He bends down, and he and a sailor lift a box. Foley and I lift another, and six seamen, I find they are off the implacable, lift the others, and off we pant up the cliff over that third-line trench, lined with men of the beach parties with fixed bayonets. It's a devil of a walk to the second line, and it reminds me of hurrying to the railroad station with a heavy portmanteau to catch a train. Foley and I constantly change hands. The seamen, too, find it heavy going. We arrive at the second line and run into the adjutant of the Lancashire Fusiliers, calmly walking up and down his trench with a stick. We halt, open the boxes, and hang the strings of ammunition around our necks and over our shoulders. I am almost weighed down with a load. We have a rest, taking cover in the trench now and again as bullets come rather thicker than usual. The firing is frightful now a roar of musketry, and now desultory firing, while the ship's guns boom away in the same spasmodic way. O'Hara then says, Come along, follow me, and we go, headed by the adjutant of the Lancashire Fusiliers to show us the way, and on over the grass and gorse into the blackness beyond. We are lucky, for it is a quiet moment, and we have only to go three or four hundred yards, but just as we approach the first line, out bursts a spell of machine-gun and rifle fire, rapid, and I fall headlong into what I think is space, but which proves to be our front-line trench. I fall clean on top of a Tommy who is the opposite of polite, for my ammunition slings have tapped his nose painfully. I apologize, and, feeling a bit done, lie down in the mud like a frog, the coolness of the mud soon reviving me. We pass the ammunition along, each man keeping two or three slings. O'Hara wanders along the trench, 
having to keep his head low, for it is none too deep and bullets are pretty free overhead, while I remain and chat to the Tommy, another Lancashire Fusilier who is shivering with teeth chattering and wet through, for it is raining. A Tommy on the other side of me is fast asleep and snoring loudly. The one awake describes to me the landing of the previous early morning, the machine-gun fire and the venomous barbed wire with the sea just lapping over it and the exciting bayonet work that followed. I am enjoying myself now, for I am in the front-line trench with a regiment which has just added a few more laurels to its glorious collection. It is curious, but no shells are coming from the Turks, and bullets are such gentlemanly little things that they do not worry me. It is funny, but everybody up here appears very cool and confident while on the beach they are all inclined to be jumpy. O'Hara comes back with the two sailors. Foley has disappeared, and the other four sailors also have gone. We push along to the end of the trench, and the firing having died down somewhat, we climb out into the open and wend our way back. We seem to miss our bearing and go wandering off a devil of a way, when another burst of firing from a few machine guns forces us to dive promptly into a hole which by providence we find in our path the two sailors have disappeared somewhere we find two men crouching in the hole and on asking who they are find they are lancashire fusiliers separated from their regiment i can hear the swish of the machine-gun bullets sweeping nearer and nearer further and further from me and then nearer as the guns are traversed we are evidently lying in a hole which was dug to begin a trench but which was abandoned it is practically only a ditch, the shape of a small right angle. O'Hara and I fall one side, and the two Lancashire Fusiliers the other, and we crouch for three-quarters of an hour. If we kneel, our heads are above the parapet. After a while, O'Hara says to me, I am awfully sorry for getting you in this fix, Gillum, and I reply automatically, just as one might in ordinary life, Not at all, a pleasure, sir. Really, though, I don't like it much but I am much happier here than I would be on the beach. The firing dies down again. The ship's guns are still banging away steadily. O'Hara disappears somewhere. I follow where I think he has gone, but I hear his voice after a minute talking to an officer, and I therefore lie down. But for a while I can't make out the situation. Firing starts again, and I can almost feel the flight of some bullets, and I lie flat. It dawns on me that I am lying in front of a trench, I wriggle like a snake over the heap of earth in front of me into the trench behind and find it not nearly so deep as the one I have just left, nor so roomy. The firing gets so hot that I try to wiggle in beside the form of a man which is perfectly still. An extra burst of firing sends me struggling for room into the trench, and the man whom I thought was dead moves, which sends a shiver down my spine. I apologize, and he makes room for me. A little later the firing dies down again. Two figures run past our trench shouting, All correct, sir! And an officer shouts, All correct! They are runners sent up from the beach. I can hear O'Hara talking to some officer the other side of a traverse. Then he calls me, and joining him, I follow him down toward the masts of the ships that we can just see silhouetted against the brightening sky. Suddenly an advanced sentry cries, Alt! Who are you? Friend! Who are you? "'Friend! Friend! Friend!' shouts O'Hara. "'Hands up! Advance one!' And for some stupid reason I think he means advance one pace, which I solemnly do. O'Hara catches me a blow in the tummy and nearly wins me, saying, 
Stand still, you dash fool. And I stand stock still, gasping for breath, with my hands above my head, while he walks slowly forward with hands up, and I can just see the sentry covering him with his rifle the while. I can hear them talking, and after a few sentences O'Hara calls me, and I follow, still with my hands up, until I reach the sentry. I think this frightened me more than all the events of this night. We continue our way. It is not so dark as it was, and it has ceased raining. Then a horrid thing happens. I fall headlong over a dead Turk, with face staring up into the sky and glazed eyes wide open. He wears a blue uniform, and I think he must have been a sailor from Sedel Bar Fort. Ugh! I almost touched his face with mine. Shortly after this mishap, we arrive at the third-line trench, crowded with troops of all kinds, made up from the parties on the beaches, and get challenged again by some engineers. Safely passing these, we stumble down the slope to the beach. O'Hara sends me off to look for the stores, and I last see him going back once more with a rifle and bayonet. I run into Foley, who I find has had an adventurous time. Having had the ammunition taken off him, he tried to find us, but turned the wrong way up the trench. He got out into the open after a bit and wandered, apparently, just behind our front line towards V Beach, well the other side of W. The rifle fire was so hot there that he crawled like a caterpillar back to the second line and from there doubled back to the beach, steering himself by the mast lights of the ships. We see that the stores are okay and then run into Carver, who has just landed, Afterwards, I find my friend Major Gibbon of the Howitzer Battery busy getting his guns ashore. Foley and I then go back to the boxes, and we lie down like dogs, falling to sleep at once on the soft, comfortable sand. Dawn breaks over the hills of Asia. End of section 3